please stand for the reading of God's word. Reading Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge with fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongues parade through the earth. Therefore, his people return to his place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with most high? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of of thy children. When I ponder to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. And how they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered, when I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand, and with thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who far from thee will perish. Those thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. The word of God. Please be seated. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, that speaks to us in our situations. We thank you for the heart of David. We pray that you would uh, use this psalm to to enlighten and speak and shine light your light into our hearts, uh, that we can see how we respond like the psalmist has uh, at our circumstances. And be with Fred as he would speak to us, uh, and uh, pray that your spirit would use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, It's an honor for me to be here. I have to warn you, though, that there is a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico called Fred. But even worse than that, there's a hurricane right behind it called Grace. So (laughs) you can pray for us. We've been getting a lot of abuse from our family and children in a 
it's very rough on our self-esteem. <laughs> the title of the sermon today is The Goodness of God to His Church. The Bible begins with the goodness of God in Genesis 1. One of the words that's repeated the most, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good. Over and over and over again, the chapter talks about the goodness of God. We go to the end of the Bible, and we see the book of Revelation, and what do we see there? We see the goodness of God, that what began in the garden as a beautiful and a perfect place, God is in the process of taking us back to a place, a garden, a place better than the garden, where we will enjoy His goodness. And I assume that we are all here today because we are interested in that goodness, and we want to understand and experience that goodness in our own lives and in the world in which we live. We live in a fallen world, a world with many difficulties, a world with many challenges, And yet, God has made provision that we as His people could understand and we could experience that goodness. We want to look at Psalm 73 this morning to see what God says about that. The first verse, if you have your Bible, it says, Truly God is good to Israel. And Israel there is to be understood as His church. The people of God in the Old Testament was Israel. The people of God in the New Testament are called primarily the church, though the New Testament calls them the Israel of God. God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. The verse connects the goodness of God to purity in heart. And we'll see in this psalm that the great battle the psalmist sings about is envy and how that affected his heart and blocked his seeing the goodness of God kept him from understanding the goodness of God. We find the concept of envy in the Bible in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. The Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms speak of the antidote to covetousness or envy as contentment. It's one thing to exhort ourselves to be content, but how do we develop a heart that's truly content, that's truly at peace in the goodness of God? Psalm 73 teaches us how to do that. It's a process. It's a skill that we learn and can learn. We live in a culture that promotes envy It promotes dissatisfaction. We're taught to covet things through advertising. We envy the lives of the rich and the famous. They're portrayed in front of us, and we are taught subliminally at the least to envy what they have and to want what they have. Political philosophy promotes envy. it, it, It posits one group against another to envy, to covet, to covet their prosperity. All around us, we are told about the many good things that we do not have. But if we had them, we could have peace and prosperity. We're taught to envy. 
This morning, we're going to take a very quick trip through Psalm 73, where we'll examine our own thoughts and the thoughts of our culture so that we might arrive at the place of true contentment. That place is at the feet of God Himself, through the person of Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit. But I want to look at three passages before we get into Psalm 73. I want you to think about three other passages that impact this and help us understand Psalm 73 better. The first one is Matthew 4.17. You don't need to turn there. It says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Martin Luther, you're familiar with Luther. He posted the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, and God used that to begin what we call the Reformation. The first thesis, Martin Luther refers to Matthew 4.17. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he will that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Psalm 73 is going to teach us how to live in that kind of a life, how to live a life of repentance. The second passage is in Matthew 5, and that follows very shortly after Matthew 4, 17. It says, Jesus began to preach. What did he preach? Well, we have the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's given to us as an example of the preaching that Jesus did. You're familiar with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Beatitudes. What is the first Beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word blessed is interesting because in the Greek, it's used of the gods on Mount Olympus. The gods on Mount Olympus live lives of pleasure and joy. They lived above the cares of the world. And so it carries with it that idea of envy. We envy those gods. And very we have the same kind of thing in our culture today where we envy the rich, the famous, the athletes, the rock stars, the movie stars, those who are quite wealthy. But Jesus takes that word with the concept of envy, and he stands it on its head. It's not the rich and the famous, he said, that you should envy. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who are humble and honest about who they are. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then if you skip on down past that first beatitude to the sixth beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, which is a reference to Psalm 73. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this morning, we want to look at Psalm 73 in that light because we want to understand what it means to be pure in heart. Because to be pure in heart is to see God. It's to live in His goodness. How can we live in His goodness? It's by being pure in heart. But what does that mean? Well, it might, it might come to you as threatening because you say, well, I've tried very hard to be pure in heart, and I just have thoughts that keep jumping in, and I have envy, and I wrestle with things. So I don't know how to be pure in heart. I'm not very good at it. Well, that's good. I'm glad you say that because we're going to look at Psalm 73. We're going to see how this psalm teaches us what it means to be pure in heart. It's not a moralistic exhortation. It's it's a challenge to grow and to understand 
how to be pure in heart. The third passage I want to point you to is Psalm 24. I'd like to read the first five verses of that psalm. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who, and who shall stand in his holy place? So it asks this question. God is high and holy. He's lifted up. Who is able to come? Who is able to see him? Who is able to know him? Who is able to come into his presence? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So that psalm, is that psalm just a moralistic exhortation to be better? Or is it talking about the requirement to be in the presence of God? I think it's the requirement to be in the presence of God. Who here this morning meets that qualification? Who in history since Adam has ever met that qualification? There's only one that was worthy, who had a pure heart, who had clean hands. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm, Psalm 24 is speaking of Christ and what he has done. He has gone into the presence of God himself. He has clean hands. He has a pure heart. So we come to Psalm 73 with these passages in mind. Matthew 4, all the Christian life is one of repentance. Matthew 5, the promise of blessing to the pure in heart. They shall see God. Psalm 24, Christ is the one who through his perfect obedience had a pure heart so he could enter the very presence of God. But in Psalm 73, we see a king who does not have a pure heart. He's a king like you and me. The theme of this psalm is God's process for working in us pure hearts so that we can grow in our understanding of God's goodness and his and be content. Psalm 73 teaches us how we who are fallen can grow in our understanding of to be pure in heart in Christ. There are four parts to this psalm. The first part is the introduction in verses 1 to 3. The second part I've titled in verses 4 to 15, what was and might have been. And then the third section is what is and shall be, verses 16 to 26. And then he concludes in verses 27 and 28. Let's look first of all at the introduction, verse 1 again. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We see that Asaph wrote this psalm. Asaph wrote inspired psalms for King David. You see that in 1 Chronicles. Asaph and his family formed a guild of Levites who provided the music that was part of the worship from the time of David. The Asaph who wrote this psalm is probably a descendant of the first Asaph who worked under David. Psalm 73, though, notice is written in the first person. Asaph, like his grandfather, is writing on behalf of one of David's descendants. When we see the first person, I, or me, in a psalm, we should consider the king, the voice of the king. The king is the spiritual leader in, in Israel. And so the king is speaking 
He's speaking to the people about his own need to be pure in heart. And we will see how he learns. What is that process by which he learns to be pure in heart in order to see God? So he says there in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In verse 2, he says this, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. That word but there might be one of the most important words in this psalm because he's made an affirmation in verse 1. God is good to his people, to his church, to those who are pure in heart. But what is he saying? He's saying, I'm not pure in heart. I've been wrestling with what it means to be pure in heart. And notice it's no just small, slight slip. He says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, he's speaking of a very catastrophic fall because he was not pure in heart. Now notice verse 3, because it tells us what was the problem. What was the problem that he had? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked around and he saw others that were doing much better than him. And he was envious. He was coveting what they had. We see here that envy is a heart problem. It's a thinking problem. And here the king is opening up his thinking for us to see what's going on in his heart, what's going on in his mind as he wrestles with this problem. Notice that the focus here is on this plane. It's others. He's envying others out here. Now, you may ask, how can we see Christ in this psalm? Well, Galatians says that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We see from Isaiah, he bore our iniquities. We see in 1 Corinthians 1, he is our sanctification. He intercedes on our behalf, so that as we go through this psalm, we're looking into the heart of an imperfect king. But this king has a perfect king who, who went to the cross, who went before the throne of God on his behalf. And so we can see Christ here as he stands with us, as we wrestle with these matters in our own heart of impurity. Now let's look at the first major section. It's what was and might have been, verses 4 to 15. What was, he tells us about the struggle that's in his own heart. And what might have been, the potential outcome of that struggle. Notice what he envied, verse 4 and 5. For they have no pains until death. They have no pains until death. Their body are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the the rest of mankind. He envies the life of the wicked. They have a much better life than I do. Notice verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace, Violence covers them as a garment. They are proud, and they don't mind telling you how well, and if only you would shape up and ship out, you could have the life that they have. You could live in the prosperity that they have. You could have the health that they have. Verse 7, he envied the abundance of the wicked. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They live the lives of the rich and the famous. He saw that, 
and he wished he had a life like that. Verse 8 and 9, notice he envies the words of the wicked. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. These are in, they're in control. They use that control to oppress others. They do it with arrogance. Verse 9, they have no fear of God. They have become their own gods. They think nothing of contradicting God or calling him a liar, much like today's church. Verse 10, the fifth thing, they worship the worship of the wicked by their friends. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault with them. They have fans. They're like celebrities. People, people bow down to them and give honor to them. Their friends worship their success. Verse 11, the conscience of the wicked he envies. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They have no sense of responsibility to God. They, they have no conscience. They have no sense that they owe a debt to God. Verse 12, the ease of the wicked. Behold, they are, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 12 is a summary. It's a bottom line. These, these wicked that he envies, they live in peace and prosperity. I want you to notice something about this psalm because it's called the law of proportion as you read the Bible and you look. Notice how many verses he's given here to speak about the, what, what's going on, on with the wicked. He's speaking about their lives. He's giving us discernment so that we can see out there. We can see into our own lives, but we can see into the lives of others. He opens it up. And why does he devote so many verses to this? Because it's a big problem. It's a problem we all face. It's a problem that he faced, and it's a problem that we all face. Notice in verse 13, the king's resentment. He asks the question, why am I doing this? I'm wasting my time. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean, <clears throat> washed my hands from innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I'm working very hard. I'm trying to serve God. I'm seeking to please God, but it's not working. It's not happening. Notice that the king is looking at life like an empiricist. What you see is what you get. <coughs> he interprets what he sees with his own wisdom. The king thinks like a pragmatist. I'm doing all this for God, and it's not working. The king thinks that perception, what he's perceiving in the life of the wicked, that's reality. How do you know reality? Is it through your feelings? All of this points us to what? Motive. Why have I been doing this? We used to say in counseling that motive is everything. That's an overstatement, but motive is huge in our lives. And he's wrestling with motive. Why am I doing this? Why am I reading my Bible? Why am I praying? Why am I serving my children? Why am I serving my family? Why am I going to church? Why am I doing all these things? And he's having a crisis of motive. Now, notice the third part of this section. I've called it what was and what might have been. Notice verse 15. <clears throat> I, and if I, if I had said, I will speak thus, 
In other words, he's saying everything that I've been talking about, all the envy of the wicked and how they're getting away with it and my own struggles, if I just said, I'm going to dish what I've been doing and I'm going to be like them, I'm going to live for them, I'm going to live for their life. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And notice that whole line very carefully. First of all, there's the betrayal. There would have been great harm. He would have betrayed. But who would he have betrayed? You know, in our culture today, we'd probably say, well, I would have betrayed myself. I have to be true to myself. You know, I have to do what's good for me. It's not what he says. I would have betrayed the children. You see, he's telling us that none of us lives to himself. None of us lives for himself. That there are children and there are generations that are involved. And everything we do and what we do affects those children and affects those generations. Everything we do has long-term consequences. Notice how he describes the children. Your children. I believe that yours should be capitalized. It is in the New King James These children, he's saying, I would have betrayed God. These are your children. You see, your children are not your children. They belong to God. They're made in his image. And the duty, the king is saying, the duty I owe to this nation and to these people is for God's, they're God's children. I have a duty to them. The same is true to us. The children that we have, they belong to God. And what we do And how we learn to be pure in heart, we do before God because these things are given to us. These children are given to us from God. So what happened? He's at a crisis point. He's at a cross in the roads, in the road. He's at a Y in the road. So what happened? Well, I term this third section, what was, what is. I, I said The first section I call what was and might have been. This third section is what is and shall be after that. Notice verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice he speaks of this process as a wearisome task. But what solved it? He said, it was wearisome. I was trying to figure it out in my own brain. I was just trying to reason my way out of this difficulty and this depression, this discouragement, until I went to the sanctuary of God. The king's rescue comes in worship. The king went to the place of worship in the Old Testament. That place was Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It was the appointed place where God met with his people. But that temple on that mountain and that city was a copy and a shadow Hebrews 12, 22 says, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. We, the believers, gathered this morning. We have come to Mount Zion, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Notice that when he came, his understanding changed. I came before the presence of God, and I discerned their end. It was the end. See, we live in a world that says you came from nothing. We talk to the men in jail all the time, prisons. The world tells us everywhere in school, in our universities, you came from nothing. You're a product of time and chance. And once you die, well, you're just dead. So if you came from nothing and you're going to nothing, what does the present mean? It doesn't mean anything. So what do you do? You eat, drink, and be merry. You envy the lives of the rich and the famous. And if you're not able to get the money, you go on the street and you buy drugs and wine. We talk about wine, women, and songs. See, if you came from nothing and you're going to nothing, then the present is live for yourself. Envy the wicked. You see, when he came to worship, he realized that's not reality. That was the perception he was struggling with but it's not reality. You see, the Bible says we came, we were created in the image of God. We began in a garden and ultimately we're going to go back to God and we're going to stand before God and we have the opportunity to live with him for eternity in a place, the garden and better. So if I am created in his image and I'm going to that place, what does the present mean? It means everything, you see. It means everything what we're doing here. It's not the perception of those who are winning with their wealth and their money and their awards and their prestige. What matters is before the face of God. Who am I before the face of God? And how do I come before the face of God? Notice what else he says in verse 18 and 19. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Have you noticed in the news, the rich and the famous, the wealthy, how much tragedy and difficulty come to their lives? God, has, God is warning you and me. He's showing them that there is an end and where you're living now because you're living for the moment and for your lust. You're on slippery ground. I was talking about this passage with a group of men Thursday night, and one of the volunteers, <clears throat> I mentioned Tiger Woods, and he said, you know, I, 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 he loves golf. He said, I went to a golf tournament. I followed Tiger around. I couldn't do it because all he was doing was cussing and throwing and breaking clubs. And look at his, look at his life. God, God says to us, here's a man who's worth in money close to a billion dollars. Look at the tragedy of his life, his family his own physical wreck, his legs broken, may never play golf again. God is placing them on slippery ground, and he's warning them of their end. What is the end? What is going to happen? Notice verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. These people who have, so, they're such icons. They're, so, they're planted in the, in the heart of the American people is people we look at. They're worth billions. And yet he says, when everything is over, 
They're like a dream. It's like a phantom. In the world of reality, not the world of perception, in the world of reality, they're just a dream. They're just a dream. It's nothing. You see, there are no tractor trailers that are suited to load up gold to drive to heaven. There are no means to take your resume to heaven. The only resume of heaven is Christ. I have the pearl of great price. I have the treasure for which I would sell everything. I have Christ. That's all that matters. Notice how he goes on in verse 21, his guilt. When my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He realized this process that he's opened up. He's been so transparent. He showed us his heart, and he realized how off base he was in his thinking. And he's guilty. He feels guilt about that. Can I say to you this morning that guilt is a good thing? Guilt is a really good thing. But it's what we tend to do with guilt is we tend to use guilt as a tool to bring about change. If I just beat myself up enough with guilt, then I'll change and be better. Notice what brings change, and notice how this turns. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. Did you get that? Verse 23, he's saying, God, in this whole process, when I was focused on the wicked and the perception of the wicked, and I was down going on this downhill trek, and I was wondering about what I'm going to do, and I'm totally confused. Where was God? He had him by his right hand. God was holding him. He had him by his right hand. I ask you this morning, do you have a God like that? It's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, in some people's opinion, is you got to hold on to God. The God of the Bible is the God who holds on to you. And he's saying through this whole process, God was holding on to him. Why? Because he loves Israel. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He was helping him understand who he was. Because when he understand who he began to understand who he was, and he came to worship in the presence of God, the picture cleared up. He saw he had a God who holds him by his right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and after you receive me to glory, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who have everything, he has something greater. He has the pearl of great price. He has the treasure. What does he have? He has God. He understands who God is, and he has him. As the psalm concludes in verses 27 and 28, he gives, first of all, a warning. Verse 27, behold, those who are far from you shall perish. All those things that he envied, all those folks that he looked at and said, oh, if I only had their life, it's going to perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. God's judgment is going to fall on the wicked. 
Verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God has moved him. God has changed him. He's cultivated a purity of heart. We're not talking about here a perfection of heart. It's not the perfection of your life. It's not the perfection of your heart. It's the direction of your heart. And God has moved him in a good direction. He's taken all these questions and all these difficulties, and he's used that because he had him by his right hand. He's used him to teach about who he is. Notice that last line, that I may tell of all your works. It's evangelism. He's going out. He's he's speaking to people about this God. You see, the God of the nation, the God who, uh, the nation who we think that health and wealth and prosperity, those are the things, and I don't have them, or I want them, and I'm going to give up everything to get them. No. If you're going to sell everything, go for God. He's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure for which you sell everything and you buy the field. So as we conclude this morning, what do we mean by pure in heart? Is it a perfect heart? No. It's a heart that's honest. It's a heart that's transparent. It's a heart that's submitted to God's written law. It's a heart that's submitted in learning from God's providence. I ask you this morning, do you live in the realization that you're in Christ? Christ is in you. You have a Christ who holds you by your right hand. And however fuzzy and difficult and challenging the moment may be, you have a Christ who holds you by your right hand. And he's growing you. He's growing you over your life in that realization. Are you resting in the one who has you by your right hand? The one who loved you before the foundation of the world, and not only to save you from yourself in this evil world, but also to bring you to the very presence of God himself, to the glory of heaven on the day of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we cannot dig into your word without seeing sin and feeling true guilt. We thank you for that conviction. Father, we also thank you that that conviction drives us out of ourselves to look at Christ, our only hope. We thank you that when we see the hope in Christ, we are led to rest in him and in him alone. May your Holy Spirit use this word to glorify your name today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.